and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Mitchell Farley-Wolf, and I'm here also, as always, with my forever co-host, James Burns. Hey, James, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I, I feel like I'm back into gaming again. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, it was just two weeks. Like, it was just a two-week thing that could fix it. Um, yeah, yeah, nothing, exactly. <laughs> there's nothing like E3 to get you to say, like, you know what? Maybe I don't even like video games right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I And I actually start to worry if I, like, even if I come home from work and it's been a really big day, if I really just don't feel like playing anything at all for a few days, it feels like there's something wrong. But um, it's come back. So that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I totally, uh, I, I totally know what you're talking about. Here's the thing. We have, for the first time in my tenure, in charge of the Super Jump podcast, before I took over from Chris Pratt, when uh, that was, you know, that was how he got his start. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, uh, that's he, right. Yeah, he was the previous host of the Super Jump podcast. <laughs> um, we have a special segment today that we're going to put in the middle of the show, like a, like a you know, like a thing that we recorded at a different time. Whoa! So stick around for that. That's when uh, Cameron from DK Vine and Jeff Onan, who you've heard on the show a number of times if you listen to the mid-jumps, and I all talk about Sea of Thieves, how far it's come, where it's gone to, um, how it's grown, what's changed in the first four months of that game's existence. But before that, let's do our regular segments James, are you ready for the Playtime Report? So, the Playtime Report. It's the thing where we do, that we do, well, you know, we talk about the games we play. James, what you been playing? Uh, I've been playing one new game and one, one new-ish game, a port of, of an older game that I missed. One of the many awesome Wii U games that I missed back in the day. Um, so the Wii U port is Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. I'm finally playing this. So Uh, I loved this game on Wii U, but I can't get myself to buy it again. Um, Yeah. How do you feel? I, I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, the only experience I'd had with this at all was, um, I think from memory, these, the, this concept first appeared in Super Mario 3D World, I think, wasn't it? There were certain special levels, right? Um, yeah, that that had Toad and had this kind of like cube level design puzzle thingy. That's the technical term. Um, <clears throat> and I thought it was okay there. You know, it was interesting, um, but I never, for some reason, I just never really got into it in terms of Wii U. I think I probably abandoned Wii U. Um, a little bit early and moved on to other things. Um, but I'm loving it. Uh, and I'm, it's one of those games where every single level is completely surprising. And it's kind of amazing how much they've actually packed into those tiny little boxes. Um, right. Yeah, I would for sure. So, and there's a lot of really interesting callbacks as well, just in terms of the, like the aesthetic design of the levels. I don't know if that's something you really noticed, but there's some interesting callbacks in particular to Super Mario Brothers 2 um, mm-hmm. in terms of visual design, which I thought was really cool because some of those design elements don't really um, 
you don't see them as much in in the newer Mario games. Um, the other thing is I've been playing this mostly cooperatively, which is interesting for me because on paper the co-op I don't think sounds all that fun. No, um, I didn't think so at all. It sounded like very reminiscent of the Super Mario Galaxy co-op where someone yeah. could just be the cursor on the screen. Yeah, exactly. That That's sort of what I was thinking as well. And at first, when you first start playing co-op, it can be a little bit awkward because you've basically got like player one effectively. Uh, I mean, you each play with separated Joy-Con and player one is basically controlling Toad you know, you can pluck stuff from the ground. Um, you can use the shoulder buttons to rotate the camera left and right, and that's about it. Player two has the on-screen cursor. They can throw turnips at enemies using the cursor. They can activate stuff in the world, and they can kind of move the camera in all directions. So the first problem you encounter is that you're trying to explore something as Toad, and your your partner in crime screws you over by (laughs) moving the camera in the opposite direction and you fall into the water or something and at first i'm thinking this is like this is torture why would anyone play this but once you sort of get in sync with each other it's actually quite fun and i think the reason it works here and not in mario galaxy is because here you are actually sort of in effect solving puzzles you are actually you know, thinking about um, how you're going to locate certain objects or how you're going to navigate from one space to another. And if the two of you are sort of thinking out loud and working in conjunction with each other, it actually kind of works. Yeah, the Um, slower pace of the game, I I would imagine, invites co-op more because a lot of the co-op gameplay is probably just you talking with your partner. Yeah, exactly. How do you think this platform works or whatever? Yeah, and you'll sort of, um, you'll each notice different things and, you know, hey, what's over there? Should we go over this way? Like, what if we hit this block? Like, so it it actually works once you get in sync with someone. Um, so I'd say at the moment, I'm probably mm, a little bit more than halfway through. Um, yeah. And I, I can see why it was such a such a popular game on the Wii U. It's awesome. Everybody should get it. Yeah, I, I, re- I really liked it. I remember liking it a lot. I've been playing a different 3D Mario game uh, recently, James. I've gotten in the habit of using <laughs> the CRT next to my computer that I've <laughs> said a few things about earlier in this episode, or earlier mm-hmm. before we uh, started recording the episode, uh, yeah. to play Super Mario 64 in like while I'm on Discord calls or something like that, pretending yeah. like I'm paying attention. Now, I tried that earlier today, and Mm -hmm. the problem was that the static electricity coming off of the CRT TV shocked me so bad and traveled through my headphones into my microphone, and now I need to get my microphone replaced again, uh, again within a one-month period. So, great. Awesome. Uh, But the game Super Mario 64 is not at fault here. I want to be very clear. Uh, Shigeru (laughs) Miyamoto himself did not break my microphone. Yeah, Super Mario 64 is not trying to kill you. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The one thing I've really been enjoying with going back to Super Mario 64 is, like, for Mm. me, it's that game that I just, like, 
I know everything about this game so well and and so mm. like concisely I could just finish it in my sleep. Um yeah. like that and Banjo Kazooie for me are probably like the most the games I know the best. Um mm-hmm. So I was on a Discord call and I I wanted to challenge myself to see how many stars I could get before the call was over and I uh I got all of them. I was able to finish I was able to 100% the game in a, in a like a it was a long call. It was a little long. It had I was to gonna go say, on a little bit yeah. longer than usual. Yeah. But but yeah, uh, like five hours maybe five to six hours. Um, wow. Yeah, it was it was fun, and then I did that again, and I was I'm thinking about maybe like. It seems really hard, but I'm I'm gonna try to learn some speedrunning tricks and see how fast I can get this game. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It, um. The one speedrunning trick it looks like that you really have to learn is that weird, that weird like backwards long jumping thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is so cool. I don't think I could pull that trick off. But um, is this like, is this one of those games that you go back to every few years and play through again? Is it kind of a ritual thing that you do, or did you just? You just wanted to kind of play something and that you didn't have to think very much, and you just picked that one up. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, I think I play it at, at least once every couple of years, um, if not yeah. more often than that, because it's just, I, for me, it's gotten to the point where like, you can finish it in a day, um, where maybe that wasn't how it was before, but, um, I wanted to play something on the 64 and I looked through my 64 games and all of them were either like really long and involved like Donkey mm-hmm. Kong 64 or Banjo Tooie or something, or mm-hmm. uh, just something that I don't like as much, like Yoshi's Story. Yeah. And uh, so, like that, just kind of left Mario 64 by uh, by omission of everything else. And mm-hmm. it's a game I really like. It's I I love Super Mario 64. It's probably my favorite Mario game. Um, odyssey comes in second yeah yeah and i think super mario 64 still holds up pretty well too i mean you know it's obviously aged a lot but i think it it is still a lot of fun to go back to and play today so yeah there would be a lot of people that would argue with you that's the new online like (laughs) reigning opinion that mario 64 doesn't hold up oh okay yeah i mean i i agree with you i think it does hold up but i also am coming from a position where like i am the most biased like i i'm the exact person that isn't allowed to talk about it um Mm. yeah but i i think uh the clarity of the 3d graphics because of their minimalism because they were like in a lot in a lot of ways it was tech demo ish in like the the backgrounds Mm. can't have too much detail the the foreground can't have too much detail it needs to be as clear as possible um because we don't want to spend that much time working on like in-depth modeling and stuff uh and while games from later in the console generation did look a little bit more in-depth mario 64 i think um looks better than those because of how simplistic it is and how when the the 3d technology of the time was so bad i mean in retrospect it was bad at the time it was fine but now it looks really bad. The less of it, the better. So 
yeah that's a, a good game point. that's put together like mario uh does well yeah i find the only thing about super mario 64 that frustrates me now is is really just the camera and i mean at the time i'm sure it was a bit of a struggle at the time but there was really there really weren't any 3d third person games that had that fully controllable camera back in the day i mean that super mario 64 really pioneered that whole concept um so at the time you know you kind of didn't know any better it was such a novelty that it was that it was exciting and different and interesting. Um, when I play it now, the, the camera is probably the only thing that annoys me. Um, the thing that really holds up well is Mario's actual movement. You know, it was so well crafted and so precise that the the platforming is still really good now, I think. Um, yeah, I can I, see I a so lot too. of people just... I can see a lot of people just giving up with the camera, so I, I get it yeah, from that point of like view. Yeah, like the camera is buttons rather than a <laughs> stick. And you have to mm. use the N64 controller to make Mario walk around, which is a pretty big barrier to entry to modern players. Like, I get it. Yeah. I get it. But, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like if you know enough, and it's not that hard to learn enough, like, it, it's a, it's still pretty fun. And mm. I, I think, like, secret finding along the castle has never been as good as in Mario 64. Um yeah. I feel like they went overboard in Sunshine and underboard <laughs> underboard if that's a word uh in Odyssey <laughs> in like the the kind of like secret finding stuff. Anyway, mm. that's Mario 64. You've probably heard about it before. I don't know why we're talking about it. What's the other game you played? <laughs> um well, I'm probably about 4 hours into Octopath Traveler at the moment. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, and I I think I actually said something, I don't know if it was the last episode we did, but I was talking about the fact that I didn't think I was ready to jump into another RPG because I still haven't finished Persona 5, but you know, I, I bought Octopath Traveler and I couldn't help myself. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I mean, I can't say much about the story yet because I, I four hours is not a lot in a game that's this massive. Um but what I can say is it, it, you know, like the demo, it's, it's definitely seems to be very well written, very well translated. Uh, the voice acting is, is excellent across the board. Um, but the real meat of this game is the incredible battle system. It's, it's really, really good. Um, and I believe that it's based on an RPG series called Bravely Default, which I haven't uh, played. Yeah. It's like it seems like a spiritual successor from the same team as Bravely Default yes. and Bravely Second. Yeah. Uh, um I played I a little bit of Bravely Default and I played the demo for Octopath Traveler. And there's a uh-huh. lot in the in the sense of like deciding when to attack, when to not attack, to save up power, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh that's shared between the, the two games pretty heavily. Yeah, it actually makes me want to... I mean, would you recommend anyone go back and play the Bravely Default games? I did not play enough of Bravely Default to to rule on it one way or another, and Mm. I didn't play any Bravely Second. But uh, I I know they are liked among people that really just wanted that return of the Super Nintendo RPG on kind of a grander scale that didn't exactly come around until kind of now. Yeah, yeah. 
because the Xbox 360 PS3 generation um, for that entire time, JRPGs existed, but they existed on the Vita and the PSP and the DS and the 3DS mm. and uh, in, in kind of smaller, maybe less ambitious forms. And I mm-hmm. think Bravely Default, while still on the 3DS, was kind of like a, a rev up for Square Enix to say like, hey, we kind of want to like do this again. And now we're seeing yeah. it again uh, on, on like Octopath Traveler is here. It is a full, huge, console-worthy, long JRPG um, from the lineage of Bravely Default. I think mm. I think it would be great if you have a Switch, just go into Octopath Traveler. It seems like that's the one people prefer anyway. Uh over yeah. Bravely Default. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and there's no um and I don't know if anyone had this impression anyway, but you know, although it is um kind of harking back to that Super Nintendo 16-bit era, um this is this you're definitely right in saying this is a big fully featured high production value square enix rpg um which feels really awesome to have on the switch it kind of feels like it's filling a bit of a gap in the switch's library this is something that the switch kind of really needed i think um and yeah it's the the battle system in particular is the whole reason to play it because i mean you know um, the story is, is interesting enough so far and the characters are interesting enough so far, I think. Have you played um, all eight characters? No, no. So I'm, I'm only about, yeah, about four hours in. So I've gathered, cause you, you know, you start the game, you choose a character to start with and that, that character is sort of your, your main character through the whole story. You do encounter the other characters. They they all effectively join your party if you want them to. Um, the thing that's really cool about that, though, is you you basically have to travel around the world and find those characters in their hometowns. And when you find them, you've got the option, which I think is really nice because I didn't want to play the whole game eight times. Um, you've got the option to actually kind of play their opening chapter so the whole game sort of pauses. You play that new character's opening chapter and then it returns to you, you know, to your main kind of story and that character joins you as a party member. So um, it, no matter who you choose, you don't actually miss out on any of the stories, really, at least the intros to the stories. That's cool. Uh, do you yeah. think that you'll... So if you get just the intro from Seven and then you have the one remaining one that you do all of do you think you're going to go back and play through the full story of any other characters or do you think you're just going to go through and kind of be done with that uh look i'm not sure i think it it probably depends on if i come across a character who's who's opening i'm really really intrigued by and and I want to go back and play their whole story. I think I kind of lucked out a little bit because the character I chose um, as my starter so far has has been the most interesting one for me. Um, I I doubt though that I would play through the whole game again because from what I gather, just reading about it online, um, a lot of people it's taking them sort of 
upwards of 40, 50 hours to complete the game, like to complete one playthrough of the game. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm not hardcore enough to, <laughs> to do like 200 hours or more. Like, I, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, I'll probably play through once and then I'll move on to something else. Yeah, I, um, I, I played the demo for Octopath Traveler and I really liked the character Primrose. So that mm. is probably the character I would pick. Uh, which character did you pick as your like main one? Um, I can't remember his name. He's the thief. The thief. Uh, Therion or something? That, that sounds right. I'm just looking to see if I've got it somewhere here. Um, hang on a minute. Yes, Therion. Yep. Therion. All right. Cool. Yep. I started with him. Um, and I, I wouldn't normally in these kinds of games, I don't normally really like to play as a thief. I tend to play as more of a, either kind of a, a magic, uh, like a mage type character or, um, like a soldier type character. So hmm. this was a bit different for me, but I just found kind of the premise of his story interesting. Uh, and his opening chapter is really good. So, so That's far cool. so good. Yeah. Yeah, I um, if you want to talk about games with characters in it, <laughs> which is my segue <laughs> to talking about the fact that I played through uh, Donkey, Kong, Donkey Kong Adventure, which is the DLC expansion for Mario plus Rabbit's Kingdom Battle. Uh, it has characters in it. <laughs> Donkey Kong is one of them. Uh, Rabbit Kong is another, and there's there's some others. Uh, it is, I, I think it's being overhyped. At least it was marketed, maybe overhyped. Like I got the impression, Hey man, this is maybe not quite as big as the main campaign, but it's a whole other campaign. And Mm. I don't know about that. Like the, the, it's, it's pretty short. It's like four or five hours to, to finish. Um, Mm. okay. Like, if you're not constantly restarting a battle or something, about four or five hours. Um, it's it's worth doing at the price point it is, which is $15, so like a quarter of the main game. Yeah, that sounds mm. about right. Um, but mm. if you're looking for, like, a lot of the, like, kind of fun story dialogue stuff from the main game and the world exploration and all of that stuff, that's not quite there. What this really does is uh, it gets Rabbit Cranky and Donkey Kong uh, really, really up to snuff with like being fully featured new ideas in the Mario plus Rabbids like combat universe. Uh, they mm, feel completely yeah. different than the other characters. Uh, very, very fun. Uh, Donkey Kong can just pick up anything at, at any point and throw it. And Rabid, uh, Rabid Cranky can uh, do a whole bunch of stuff with his crossbow that uh, is pretty unlike every other character in the game. Having... It, before this, before I actually got to play through it, um, there was a question of, will Donkey Kong and Rabid, Rabid Cranky be playable in the main game? And the answer was no, they wanted to keep those separate. And I thought that was fine. I thought that mm. was like pretty good because that could potentially ruin the balance of the main game. But now mm, that I've played yeah. it played through it, 
I that's kind of all I want. I like all I want is just more options in the characters that I have to to do things like that. Just to uh, to say like, okay, that was cool. These are cool new additions. But the only existing character that they can cooperate with is Rabbit Peach, and I want to see like how how would uh, Donkey Kong's like throwing ability work with Mario's hammer or something like that? That would be cool to see. Uh, didn't didn't yeah. quite like get to there. Uh, the the journey through Donkey Kong Island was cool. Uh, I mm-hmm. liked the the character arc of Rabbit Kong actually as. as silly as that sounds uh he had like a a thing where he just got corrupted by the power of these uh enchanted bananas and like how we dealt with that was kind of cool to see it was interesting um but as a donkey kong fan myself which i am it it, Mm. it's kind of telling that it, it, it like it shows how little of the rest of the donkey kong universe is like a staple like for mario's universe you know how you can just pick up like oh in mario's universe uh so peach's castle's got to be there there's going to be mushrooms there's going to be toads there's going to be starmen there's going to be mountains with little eyes on them uh Mm. like there's all this like iconography in donkey kong that stuff exists but it isn't used especially in in recent years like there's an entire faction of enemies that are like the rivals to the Kongs, which are the Kremlings, read, led by K. Rule, who's a character that people seem to actually really like and want for Smash Brothers and stuff. Uh, that's not in this game. Uh, that's that, that's definitely not here. There are bananas here. There is Donkey Kong himself. It's on an island. Oh, and I yeah. guess Rabid Cranky is a version of Cranky Kong that is it and it makes you wonder like why why don't they want to use this stuff why isn't like rambi there and he could use he could be a rhino why isn't like there's all these Mm. other options for representing donkey kong country um not a big deal but i just it 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 comes off as odd that they don't really want to dive into like that much fan service in comparison to what they did for the mario series it's interesting yeah, it, <clears throat> it definitely sounds like they could have gone a little bit deeper, even just even just kind of, you know, winking and nodding at some of those things, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, part of, you... part of the biggest, like, lore, I guess you could say, of Donkey Kong mm. Country is, are all these other Kongs besides Donkey Kong. Like Diddy yeah. and Dixie and Funky and Cranky and Wrinkly and, uh, and Candy... Uh, and 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 tiny they like they're all things that exist in this world and the only kong in this game is donkey kong and yeah it it just it just makes it seem like is this really based on donkey kong or is this just the character donkey kong is here and it's kind of tropical which is a little weird yeah yeah i see what you mean almost like donkey kong is visiting the world of the rabbits rather than the other way around yeah yeah like it is it is tropical which is like a donkey kong island type of thing but it's Mm. other than that you know that's not to say like that's actually a a knock on the game if i were like reviewing it officially it wouldn't even come up i'm just saying kind of a weird thing um it's a fun it's a fun way to spend a couple hours yeah absolutely i I like doing it yeah um let's head into the newsy nibble (laughs) 
the newsy nibble is pretty big this week <laughs> yeah or maybe it's nothing at all <laughs> it's it's hard to say uh we're, <laughs> could we're, be huge could be nothing could be huge could be <laughs> nothing let's talk about generation nine of consoles uh we have talked about this before and we've talked about it mm. in in the sense of like do you think they're doing it now nah it'd be weird if they did it now and we've been right for a while, but soon we won't be right anymore because, <laughs> um, well, the Xbox Scarlet is hitting the rumor mill. Project Scarlet is supposedly a Microsoft project, uh, two different SKUs. One's a big, powerful box, just like the Xbox or the PS4 or whatever. Uh, and the other is Scarlet Cloud, which is a streaming box, totally falls in line with what they said at E3 how Microsoft mm. is getting really into streamable gaming. Um, yeah. The other company that said that specifically was, I believe, EA and maybe even Ubisoft also were talking about streaming games. Um, mm. This, If that is the new console generation, that's huge. That's a huge game changer. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting that they that the rumors suggest they're working on these two different devices um which kind of makes sense given that there are going to be a lot of markets around the world where a stri- a dedicated streaming device just isn't going to be realistic um you know and we've talked about that before as well the idea that um you know there are numerous kind of companies that have attempted streaming of different kinds and none of them have really been able to tackle um the latency issues around those really high speed games Mm -hmm. um so it kind of makes sense to me that they'd offer these two different devices um you'd have to assume surely that the streaming only device would be a lot cheaper than the kind of the full powerful locally you know local dedicated machine you uh, yeah i'm well possibly it depends on a lot of things um so the first thing that comes to mind when i hear people seriously talking about streamable gaming is how good is your internet because mm. mine's fine but sometimes youtube videos buffer and sometimes yeah. netflix doesn't play at the resolution i want it to at first and mm-hmm. that's like pretty first world problems and i'm fine with that but in a video game, that isn't cool, especially a multiplayer game. That it yeah. suddenly turns from all right to not at all cool. And mm. I, I wanted to get your, your take on that. Uh, I think in general, your internet speeds as an Australian are going to be uh, better than mine as an American, actually. Uh, which is, uh, I'm, well, I'm definitely jealous. But <laughs> besides that... Like, do you think that would work in your ecosystem of gaming? It's it's really hard to say. Um, I mean, so Australia kind of has this funny two speed system because we've got our we've got our old school, you know, copper wire telephone system um, where you know you might have an ADSL or an ADSL2 connection which is kind of your your normal broadband but then a few years ago they started building an what's what's called an NBN a national broadband network which is like a 
really high speed fiber optic network all around the country. Um, and there's a whole, that could be a whole podcast. There's been a lot of issues <laughs> around that and, you know, different governments have come in and made changes to the technology and whatever. Um, the version of NBN that I have at my house is, I think, uh, like the fastest version you can get because it's literally the fiber optic cable. It literally comes straight into a box in my house. So there's no like intermediary at all. I'm connected directly to the pipe. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, for streaming content in general, like to give you an example, if I want to stream a 4K movie, I never have any buffering. Like unless there's a, there might be really rare occasions where it buffers a little bit, but pretty much it never buffers. It just starts up straight away and you can rewind and fast forward and it's all good. Hmm. Um, but so I, but first of all, I don't know. I think there's, or I imagine there's probably a big difference between just streaming content like that versus streaming something that's interactive where you can be, you know, you could be jumping in and out of different levels. Um, you're, you're having to stream, especially in a game that's like 4k on a next generation console, right? Like you're, you're streaming these really high resolution assets in really quickly. Um, I just don't know how, how that would work. Um, right. Yeah. You know, there must be some clever ways of, of caching some of the data or whatever, but I don't know how they would do it. So even on my connection here, which is pretty good, I still sort of question how well it would work. And, you know, I have to acknowledge that like within Australia, my connection, I don't know what the percentage would be, but there would be millions of people in Australia who don't have this connection. And, you know, then when you start looking at other regions around the world, there would be, you know, I would have thought the majority of people probably don't have a connection like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So a lot of people are going to just, it's not going to be an option for them, right? Like presumably a lot of people are going to be buying that dedicated box. And if that dedicated box has all of the hardware and processing power locally, then I'm assuming it's going to be a more expensive proposition. Whereas the streaming box is, I assume is just going to be almost like a little thin client, like a, you know, as long as it's got power and it can connect to your TV and connect to the internet, it probably doesn't need a lot of local processing power. Yeah, so the way I understand this, and Microsoft could totally come out and say, like, no, I've got a fix for this. It's like this, and then that could change the game. But the way I understand Mm. streaming games is that they can take care of their cloud service as best they can, and they can give you a box that does, like, the, 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 the rumors are specifically saying things like particle effects, and collision detection stuff like that will be done locally on your box because that's just some extra processing power that you need to do fast um yeah okay i see yeah in like you can work on those two things as as much as you want but the internet connection between that box and your cloud uh you just don't have any control over and i'm i'm wondering if microsoft's trying to like play hardball with comcast or something like 
some internet provider because otherwise i would see that as a complete stop i would see that as something Mm. like the way the monopolies especially in america i know this isn't a problem everywhere but in america the monopoly um esque way that the internet providers are set up right now is just driving service way down prices way up um, it's not as good as it could be. It's not as good as almost any other country of comparable wealth uh, mm. or even size. Like South Korea, Japan, um, I would expect this to come from them because their internet connection is fantastic. Uh, they're especially South Korea. Oh, man. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a cousin who's Korean and he's he always tells me about like, when he comes over here, he tries to watch a YouTube video on his phone. He's like, wait, why isn't this working? Am I not connected to the internet? I have to tell him, no, man, sometimes it just doesn't. <laughs> sometimes it just doesn't go. <laughs> like, that's how this works yeah. in this country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I totally would have expected it to come from the East. But to come from the West with Microsoft uh, is, is a surprise. Maybe they're, they have something we just don't know about and can't know about. Be- and I think that would, that would make sense, especially co- considering another part of this rumor. Sorry, James, I didn't put this on the document because it, this is like too recent. Google, um, really trying to get in the video game scene, it seems. People who, uh, people who are, are, are supposedly connected to Google who are remaining anonymous are saying things that like Google has, a, a, an approach into games they, they want to buy up some game developers they want to make a box potentially that could maybe be a competitor to the console market now and they also want to mm-hmm. get into streaming streaming games um, yeah. now Google does have their Google Fiber situation in some cities where the, the internet connection is just like pretty great um, but Google doesn't really have that big of a reach compared to the Comcast or so, or or someone or and I think most of their fiber uh, efforts are American. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, um, I think you're right. Hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just it's just weird. Is this what Generation Nine of consoles looks like? Like a like we're actually getting less powerful consoles just with f- the focus on more powerful <laughs> cloud streaming. Yeah, I mean, I I guess. Um, I mean, I guess it's an obvious thing to say, but from my point of view, it's really, you know, it really just does come down to that fundamental question of, you know, does it work? And the other thing is like, and I know this is something that probably doesn't happen very often. I mean, it it doesn't happen very often here, but what happens if your, if your internet dies or, you know, there's a, there's a technical fault or something like that and you're just totally you know, you've got no local gameplay ability whatsoever. So you're yeah. just totally cut off. Um, but I, I sort of realize as I'm saying that, that this is maybe like a concern. This might be my dial-up modem history coming back to haunt me or something. Because, I mean, when I think about it, like most of our television now, we we watch through, like we have an Apple TV and most television and movies we stream through that. Um, and we do that every single day, pretty much. So, uh, and I can't really think of a time when we've been like impacted by an outage where we haven't been able to access content. So 
I guess it could happen, but um, I guess I do sort of worry a bit about the reliability of it. That would be the main thing. Yeah, I, I mean, like speeds here at least i mean this is super anecdotal but where i am in the country speeds are actually Mm. pretty great speeds aren't the problem uh spottiness is more of a problem uh yeah yeah spottiness like consistent connections are are not consistently found um across at least america um I, i i don't know anything about the european uh like internet connection scene like how that's going Mm. i i assume it's more of what america's doing but maybe it's better i don't know um like really it's it's uh there are some obstacles here and if maybe just for a while it's just gonna be bad but it's gonna be so cheap compared to like buying its own console that it could still work out which is kind of like what we're seeing on the Switch, where like if you look at the the quality of the uh, like the graphics in a Switch game, they're just kind of bad compared to what's going on in other places. Not the style or anything, mm. but the fidelity, and that's fine. Um, now now we might see that in another angle with with uh, with streaming games, and also it looks like. Uh, Xbox and Google, like the rumor is, both of them are also working on big boxes, so that's not going to be the only option. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it's something to think about. PlayStation 5 is also close. I don't see Sony having the infrastructure to make a cloud system at all. Um, like, I, I don't think Nintendo would ever do that. So this could be very unique to just Microsoft right now. Um, so it probably won't define the generation, but it will be something to, to think about. And it does seem like it's getting really close. Yeah. It kind of feels like it's going to be a bit of a, it's kind of a first toe in the water in terms of experimenting with this on, you know, a mass market platform for the first time. Um, and you know, if, if it does well, if, if they can actually get it to work, then I think that'll probably be a signal to the rest of the industry. And, you know, it might be another generation or two, but presumably everybody will ultimately move in that direction, uh, at some stage, if the technology works. Um, I was reading about, speaking of PlayStation five, I was reading about, um, the idea that, um, you know, I think everyone had been saying, recently that we really shouldn't expect it until at least 2021 but there have been some rumors recently that are suggesting that it is much more likely to arrive in 2020 which kind of makes sense given that the xbox rumors are talking about 2020 as well like you know if sony want to come out in the same year um and although it's not that far away i mean it's still depending when they launch, it could still be sort of two years away from this conversation. So it could, um, it could potentially yeah. be that. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like both companies, Microsoft and Sony are kind of just waiting on the other one to announce what their thing is first, because that period in between where the other one announces what their thing is and the launch of their thing is where you can strike most optimally. 
if Microsoft says we run at 9.8 gigawatts, Sony says, well, we actually run at 9.9 gigawatts, so get wrecked a little yeah. bit. We got more gigawatts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like, I, I feel like the only reason we haven't heard anything yet is because they're kind of just waiting on each other, um, which bodes well for the Switch, because here's another point. Nintendo said that they can see a lifetime for uh, of five to seven years for the Switch, mm-hmm. which is a normal console life cycle, but the Switch started in between console life cycles for the other companies. Meaning that for the majority of that five to seven years, if it actually lasts that long, they will be, like, solidly in last place in terms of power, like, even more than they are now. The Switch compared to the original Xbox, or sorry, original Xbox One, is not, like, it's definitely less powerful. It's not that much less powerful that, like, I can look at a Switch game running, and I can look at an Xbox One game running, uh, not One X, just regular uh, Xbox One, Mm. and I see, like, that big of a divide. I can see a divide. It's not that crazy, though. Xbox Two, PS5 versus a Switch it it gets like it gets potentially embarrassing like it gets potentially to the point where like you can't even justify this console um as anything other than a portable anymore and maybe that's fine because it is a portable um uh, maybe it's not i don't know where I, I don't know how i feel about that yet i feel like Nintendo really thrives on getting more third-party support than it already than it, it has since like the GameCube era right now. Like that's something that they're really loving. And if mm-hmm. the Switch is just that much more underpowered than the other consoles uh, once generation 9 comes around, that'll that'll dry up. That'll potentially dry up because it'll become too expensive to keep developing this older thing in addition to this new con- uh, current thing. Um. So, so what do you think about that? Like, what's going on there? Do you do you think that the Switch um, has a chance of continuing the success it has in Generation Nine? Yeah, I do. I, I think. Um, I definitely think the risk for for Nintendo is that there are going to be games that just, you know, that 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 will target the next Xbox and the PS5 and there's just no way they'll be able, you know, to be ported to the Switch. I mean, you know, we're not going to see Cyberpunk on the Switch. I think that's a given. Um, but, no, but we did see things like Doom and we did see things yeah. like Wolfenstein 2 uh, from uh, Bethesda think... specifically where it's like those things, um, they look a little worse on Switch, but they are current gen games. And I'm thinking that if Generation 9 comes around and it's this much, it's like 18 switches stacked on top of each other, you won't, you just won't get anything like that anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like the the big issue is not so much the power differential. I think the, I think the advantage Nintendo have had, and, and it was a really good they made some really good decisions around this this time is they've provided a lot of support for kind of industry standard 
game engines and and development tools that are yeah. cross platform yeah, yeah, yeah. compatible and i and i think so i feel like that's really the big thing that they need to keep focusing on um you know i mean if you think about a pc game right like you know running running a game on full graphics settings on the most advanced pc you can find versus running it on your laptop with really low settings like you you can that that is very possible even though you might your lower end version might look absolutely awful but you know it's very possible to deal with that power differential to a pretty large degree um i think the issue is more around you know what happens with the next xbox and playstation's architecture and i think uh, even if they're more powerful which they obviously will be i i think it's pretty clear that they're going to continue with the same architectural model as the current platforms because one they're going to want to enable backwards compatibility right i mean microsoft is really all in on that yeah. and i think sony is is probably considering that pretty strongly for ps5 um and I think they, um, I think the other issue is as these consoles get more and more powerful, game development becomes more expensive. You know, it becomes more expensive to build these more elaborate, detailed assets, right? So I think Sony and Microsoft have to be a little bit careful there in terms of, um, you know, continuing to support those kind of industry standard tools and, um, development environments and all the rest of it so look it could be an issue i think it'll be an issue with some games but i feel like the switch could sort of it's sort of moving down its own path now um you know it's such a unique value proposition compared to the other platforms the only thing i think that'll really impact the switch very seriously is if Microsoft or Sony attempt in any way to directly encroach on the Switch's territory. Right, um, yeah. There have been, and, and I think these are really, really loose interpretations of something that um, Sony's CEO said recently. Um, he was talking about portable gaming and, and kind of talking about it in the context of um, of that being one model of delivering games in other words you know making a game available portably and on the tv and some have interpreted that very very loosely and and suggested that sony might be thinking of of like a direct switch competitor like a hybrid console um yeah i think that's pretty unlikely but well sony would be the one to do it like that Sony would yeah. be the one to do their the Vita method of of crossplay with the PS4 is already not totally different than the Switch. Yes. Um, the Switch is like the Switch took the Vita who was standing in the doorway and just shoved him into the room and said, "No, no, we can like go all the way with this." But potentially, yeah, yeah, I, I could see it. What do you think about before we move on to the hot topic? What do you think about um, the Google Play for console? competition do you think there's room or do you think they could possibly even shove someone out if they join Uh, i think i think the the industry like the market is large enough that there's definitely room um but i i think the big question in my mind with google is what what's their value proposition so what are they going to bring to the table 
that's actually like A, different and B, compelling. Because if you look at games on Google Play Store now on Android, I mean, you know, there are some great games on there, but it's it's not the most compelling library in the world. No. Um, so if, if their argument is we're going to bring that to your TV with our own console, I think that's not very compelling at no, all. No, that, um, that doesn't seem like what these rumors are alluding to. This seems like yeah. they want to buy a AAA developer and have yeah. and just have that be part of the Google family and use that as yeah, their okay. first-party developers to like do real big games. I mean, like, could you see something like all of a sudden you wake up tomorrow and you see like, oh, Activision Blizzard is now a Google company. Weird. Weird how that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah. They uh, have the bit, money to do it. If you, scary, if you look at it? how much money <laughs> Google and like Microsoft have compared to the rest of the uh, companies that are just game developers, like they have so much more money. It's crazy. They could buy pretty much anyone they want. But would they is the question yeah uh, i don't know i mean if they if they started a spending spree and they started buying developers or publishers uh the real question then is are they making a lot of content exclusive for this google machine and not for anyone else and if that's the case then yeah i mean that's a really significant threat it it's probably mostly a threat to I would say probably more of a threat to Sony yeah. than anyone else, really. I mean, Nintendo knows how to hunker down and, you know, mm -hmm. weather the storm and, and do their own thing and do a lot of their own in-house stuff. So they're good from that point of view. And Microsoft, you know, has kind of similar scale and size to Google in terms of, you know, if they really want to, as we've seen, if they really want to double down and buy studios and invest in exclusive stuff, they can. Sony seems like the company that would be the most vulnerable from Google in that in that context. We've never seen the PlayStation brand hurting, and it would be interesting to see what kind of tactics Sony pulls out if that happens. Because even like people think of the PS3 as the one that didn't do as well, but even that sold like I think 70 something million units. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's not a bad thing. Like that's pretty great. Um yeah. I, I wonder if if Google comes in. And one of the main reasons I think Google sounds like a nasty competitor compared to like anyone else who could join the console market is because of their money. Mm. But Microsoft also had that money. And I really think it's only done as well as anyone else in the that was already there could have. So maybe mm. it's, it's not like you can just blow up the console market. You kind of just have to be competing with everyone else at that level or lower. Yeah, um, th there's definitely a lot of truth to that. I mean, money is obviously really great. Yeah, <laughs> everybody. I, I like it. But, um, but you. I mean, you're right. You know, you there, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of know-how and and experience, and you know, it's it's not just money. You actually have to, um, you really have to be in it. I think for the long haul, and be in it in a really serious way. I mean, this was something. This was something that um, Nintendo said about Microsoft years ago when Microsoft first came into the industry. Everybody was asking Nintendo whether or not 
you know, you're afraid of this new competitor. They're just going to come in and smash everybody with their money. And Nintendo at the time said, well, you know, it's not just about money. Like we've been in this industry for a long time. We know what we're doing. We know how to make games. We know how, how to build this kind of entertainment. Um, and, and it takes time and commitment to learn that and to do that. Yeah. But, well, speaking of money, though, I'll take your money because we got bow ties! We got bow ties, bow ties, bow ties! We got fun bow ties with little cartoon characters on it. We got silly bow ties with boobs on them. You can put them right onto your goth pony. You put the bow tie right on your pony because it is the hot topic. Hello and welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I probably already did this part. It depends on how I edit it later. But I'm here with two of my best pirate friends. Uh, Everyone has some pirate friends. And mine are named Jeff. Hey Jeff, how's it going? Jeff's me. I'm the one that is Jeff. And Cameron. Hi, I'm the one that's not Jeff. That's usually how I remember you guys. There's a Jeff and there's a not Jeff. and I mean, it keeps it pretty simple. In any case, we're going to talk about Sea of Thieves today. Uh, sea of Thieves came out about four months ago. Can you believe that? It's been a while. It's weird. Yeah, I, the the release date is fuzzy for me because I was playing it before release. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just this weird whirlwind of dates and times and it's all a construct. Who knows? Yeah, the game... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree. Wasting your time. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, don't worry about wasting my time. It's like categorically not very valuable. But Sea of Thieves launched to what is broadly considered to be a, a rocky start. It got mixed reception, and uh, a lot of the initial fervor for the game died down. But the game has been evolving, maybe in the background of the video game industry in those four months, and I wanted to talk today about how the game has changed and how we all feel about it. Um, first of all, can uh, can one of you guys tell me, just f- in case I don't know, uh, about the Build Red Adventures? What are those? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tap in on that one. So, basically, the Build Red Adventures is a... It was originally announced as weekly events. It, it then evolved to become these bi-weekly, uh, two-week-long events that are added in the game kind of to tide the players over with limited time content that goes in between the major content releases and what that comes in the form of is they add a new challenge a new set of challenges to the game you have two weeks to complete those challenges and it kind of tries to highlight a a different task a different type of way you can play the game or or however you want to describe that and uh, you have two weeks to do it. It comes with some limited time rewards, and, and it can then you get some rewards that will then feed back into the other aspects of the game. Uh, you, you know, ideally, you can do these build ride adventures while playing other aspects of the game. You come across them, opportunities to complete them, um, and they're really. I think they're mixing up the gameplay, keeping it fresh. Every two weeks, you have something a little, just a little bit different to do. Um, and that, for those players that have stuck with the game or, or have come back into the game after they left, um, it's really motivating them to to 
continue that that persistent participation, that that kind of um, re-upping that engagement with the game on a week-to-week basis just by giving something new to do. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Cameron, you and I were on... Well, actually, we attempted to be on a, an episode of this podcast a while ago, closer to the game's launch, uh, with another Jeff... Uh, and, and you were also the non-Jeff on that episode. You're pretty consistent about not being Jeff across time. Um, yeah, but we're just burning through the Jeffs, though. Yeah, we are. We gotta we gotta collect some more yeah. before we run out. The the Jeff cinematic universe is not really quite gotten to the point where they're ready to make the Jeff Avengers. But you're yeah, building yeah, yeah. towards it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right now we we just have like Black Jeff. <laughs> who's supposed to be black widow uh showing up in iron jeff 2 which is like a little bit of a crossover but it's still pretty you know it's pretty tame uh yeah, in- <laughs> the start of that the start of that thought really didn't point me in the direction where the end of that thought went and i think it went well uh, yeah it's one of so- those garden path sentences um <laughs> but, but cameron we were talking at that uh on that episode that actually i'm remembering now did not launch at all because of audio issues um about something to keep you tied tied over uh just something to tide you over is the way you say that sentence throughout the weeks of this this game's existence uh and i think the build rat adventures are that uh how do you guys feel about their their um efficiency and their ability to get people to continue to play the game um, well, I mean, I'll say this from my personal experience. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned these were originally described as, as weekly events, and I, I think they might still call them that. I'm not entirely sure. But um, I'm glad they turned into bi-weekly events because um, at least with the, the content they, they've contained so far, there would be, if these were all crammed into a single week, there would be absolutely no way I could accomplish them nearly to the degree i have unless my life entirely became sea of thieves they like um mitch we talked about things to to tide you over these these give you a lot to do they do they do give you a lot um the one that's currently happening right now is the the sunken curse which is the introduction of underwater treasure that you can just find anywhere but specifically uh for this build red adventure they've added a bunch of mermaid statues where some of them are are sapphire based emerald based or ruby based and that just indicates difficulty to take down your goal is to because you hate anthropology or whatever you just want to destroy them and destroying a certain number of each type uh, gets you closer to getting that un, uh, time-limited loot. And if, if you destroy a hundred of them overall, which takes a while to do, and it, it probably will take you the full two weeks if you're a pretty casual player, like I would describe myself as being, um, th- that, that's a lot. Like, that, that takes you really to the, to, like, to the end of the Build Red Adventure. It's a lot of time. I would say so. I, I so far I have not co- taken any. There's been three Buildred adventures. So far, none of them has taken me longer than a week. Uh, but I am not your average player, and I'll admit that. No, you, no, you aren't. You are. <laughs> yeah. um, and generally, when they, when I'm able to finish them, it's because Jeff has helped me. 
Yeah, um, same here. Uh, Jeff, for for those of you who don't know, which should be everyone, um, unless it's weird and like you just Jeff, do you have a fan base? Do you have a fan base within the Super Jump community? I don't actually know. I don't know I the, the the crossover between the Super Jump community and then my blog, uh, which is you know has no views at all. Uh, there might be a crossover. There's very little. I think there is a crossover, and it's exactly Mitch. Mitchell, <laughs> you, you are in the middle of that Venn diagram. Um, but I'll say, you know, uh, just for the context of the of the listeners, I'm a pirate legend, which is kind of the yeah. high high end of the um, the progress cap, sort of. Very recently, congratulations, by the yeah, way. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but I guess sort of what I how I play the game is I play the game a lot, a lot of time investment. And uh, a big part of that is if there's a challenge to complete, like these build ride adventures, I'm going to complete the heck out of that. I'm going to get it done. And then I'm going to look out for other people who are saying, you know, hey, anyone else want to crew up and, and work on this? And I'll say, hey, I'm already done with it, but I'll crew up anyway. Because doing those challenges, I find uh, to an extent, are fun and fun activities in and of themselves, even if you're beyond the point where they are earning you anything or earning you progress to it's measurable um but also hanging out with your friends is fun so it's kind of a win-win for me yeah i i think that some people have uh expected from the beginning since before launch a more story oriented game in sea of thieves and they just haven't got it and the build the build rat adventures and so far the the major expansions as well because there's only been one in the hungering deep i don't think have really answered those people um because most of what has been been going on has been all mechanical the the hungering deep introduced the megalodon which is just a big enemy that you can find on the open water the skeleton thrones uh really didn't do anything uh the gunpowder skeletons it was the build rat adventure after skeleton thrones where now some skeleton enemies can have they can hold gunpowder which just sucks if they charge you and now the the most recent one introduces the idea of sometimes you can there there, there can be treasure spawned underwater and that's yeah just i guess thing. we we should go into detail about that like these are like the build rat adventures are new things for players to do every couple weeks but they're also um like sort of backdoor introductions to new permanent feature rollouts in the game yeah like um this the sunken curse is all about um diving underwater and going after these statues that you have to destroy but it's also introducing the random loot that you just described um gunpowder skeletons introduced gunpowder skeletons which are in the game permanently they're just um not appearing with the frequency that they did for the like that event um Skeleton Thrones, where they added a bunch of um, hidden chairs for you to, um, <laughs> yeah, try to, yeah. I re- well, you worked a little backwards there <laughs> in in terms of a bit with the timeline, but also in the hype level. We end yeah, on the chairs. I mean, Save the chairs for last. Say, <laughs> I I I have to imagine that they knew what they were doing when they were like, "What's a what's a fun piratey thing to add to the game?" And it was chairs. It was some it was some big chairs that you can find and sit in. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the actual reason for that is that you need to shoot yourself out of a cannon onto that chair, so it's a bit of a like a challenge in that right. way. I guess the, but, the, the, yeah. the logic is uh, we have the ability to launch ourselves out of cannons. 
wouldn't it be a fun gameplay activity to try and launch yourself to land on precarious surfaces around the world? And I guess so now said, that I we'll think about it, that's, there. I guess now that I think about it, that's the only real one that doesn't introduce like a gameplay mechanic that's relevant elsewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in playing the course of the game normally, like um, Gunpowder Skeletons, you do. Um, Order of Souls quests um, in the normal course of the game, which are just you're pointed toward a, you're given like a hit list of skeletons and are pointed toward an island, and you go take out the captain Skelly and by extension the entire crew that's helping them out. Um, Gunpowder skele- skeletons have kind of changed the dynamic of that because now you have um, skeletons that carry gunpowder, whereas before you kind of just um, the best thing to do is kind of like charge in, take out as many skellies as possible um, with a sword or a, a gun. Now you have to kind of be more careful and think about what you're doing because you get too complacent. All of a sudden there's an exploding skeleton uh, siling up behind you and it's too late to do anything about right. it. That's kind of permanently altered the, the landscape of how a major part of the game functions. I will say this. I, I think that um, among the three Build Red Adventures we've done so far, uh, build the... Gunpowder Skeletons event is the one that most feels to me like what I expected when they introduced the concept or described the concept. And Skeleton Thrones event is the one that least to me, uh, because Skeleton Thrones was first, right? And so they said, well, they said we're coming out with these weekly events and that these weekly events are going to highlight a new gameplay addition to the world. The event will be limited time but that gameplay addition will be permanent. It will permanently change the world forever. It will always be there. And Skeleton or, uh, Skeleton Thrones came out, and uh, it was, one, not weekly. It was a two-week-long event. And two, it was a very limited engagement. You can complete the whole event in a few hours, and then you are not ever going to interact with those chairs ever again. So the idea that it introduces something to the world that will persist even though those chairs are still there, they're not a persistent activity or, or thing you come across as a player who's completed them. Now, Gunpowder Skeletons is exactly as described. They came out with a new gameplay idea. Skeletons can spawn carrying these these gunpowder explosives. They turned it into a limited time activity, which was, uh, you know, get your friends together and go and try to set off chain reactions of these gunpowder explosions or or kill multiple skeletons at once with these explosions. That's the activity. That was limited time. Now that activity is over, the gunpowder skeletons are still there, and you still have to change up the way you interact with skeletons forever. Um, Yeah, yeah. Sunken Curse is a little bit in the middle. It's not quite as uh, impactful as gunpowder skeletons, but it is something that is going to kind of persist through the world the gameplay addition is that sunken treasure uh that we can now find it's not as impactful to the game as gunpowder skeletons but it it still kind of fits the bill so there is there's an interesting thing to note with the name of the sunken curse uh it, it involves the word curse which is interesting considering that the next major update that happens right after this build rat adventure is also it in uh including the word curse it's cursed sales and as it happens those are two radically different curses with nothing to do with each other um 
it, it seems like maybe a missed opportunity for some lore tie-in with the major update, which I, I think um, is shared with all of the updates so far and that they are less story focused and, and less lore um, focused than some players would prefer them to be. What do you think about that? Well, I think uh, if I if I may jump in, um, what I will say is that Cursed Sales itself, when it launches, which launches on July 31st, so we're going to well, have maybe a... before this episode comes out. Okay. So it's 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 set to launch July 31st. You might already have a chance to experience it. You might not whatever the case may be. Um Curse Sales is and I, I I know this but I can't say too much about it. It is going to have a story element to it. And the Hungering Deep campaign you know in a sense did have a story and lore based element and and many players praised that element of the Hungering Deep campaign. But I will say that the curse sales is going deeper with it. the The story is going to be richer. It's going to be more involved, um, and we'll have to wait and find out what what exactly that entails. Um, but I agree with you that it is a shame that the Build Red adventures haven't factored into that. And my kind of my pitch or or the kind of the thing I say, man, I wish they would have done this uh, with those Build Red adventures was. We've had three Build Ride Adventures so far, and then we have Cursed Sales, this giant skeleton curse-themed event. Um, the first two Build Ride Adventures were skeleton-themed as well. Skeleton Thrones, which are thrones made out of defeated skeletons, and then Gunpowder Skeletons, which is an event where we are going around blowing up skeletons for the fun of it. Um, it would have been very thematically appropriate if the third event, the Sunken Curse, had also been skeleton themed, yeah, and it and it would have been building up this notion that uh, we're messing with the skeletons for fun, we're we're attacking them, then we accidentally are breaking these cursed statues, which we're not accidentally breaking them, but the accident is that we're we're tampering with a curse that we don't quite understand, and as a result of that, the cursed sales event comes into play where these. We have AI skeleton ships are coming, ships loaded with skeletons that are coming directly to launch an attack on our outposts. And it would have been thematically appropriate to have these build route adventures seem standalone, but in the end, they actually built up to the big event. That would have been great. But then they kind of threw that one in there. They threw that mermaid-themed one in there that kind of... Yeah, and I don't know if that's going to build to something later, but until, like, until it does, if it does, um, it's it's kind of the outlier in them for the moment. Yeah, all of this mermaid stuff really, like, all the mermaid stuff in the game kind of feels like you're throwing spaghetti at not a wall. Like, you're just throwing spaghetti down a hallway. And as any chef can tell you, that's not good for the spaghetti. It gets it all, like, dusty if you haven't vacuumed, you know. It can get some stray hairs if you have a pet. And I do have a dog, so I'm not going to throw the spaghetti down the hallway. I think I this say metaphor this. has escaped me. But... Your metaphor, where I can save your metaphor. You said okay. that it's not good for the spaghetti, but I'll tell you this. As a chef, I don't care what's good for the spaghetti. I care what's good for the belly. 
the human okay. belly. Okay. And, yeah. And if you throw yeah, yeah. If, what if I mean throw by spaghetti that is, on the floor, the dog might enjoy it. Yeah. What do you mean by right. that, Jeff? Let's let's talk about. What I mean it. by that is what I mean by that is, and don't overanalyze this because it won't make sense. But I'll uh, pretend it does. What I, what I mean by that is, um, these disparate elements of lore that seemingly are thrown at the hallway. Uh, I, I believe they are building up to something, uh, especially with the exterior lore of the game, the the extended lore that we see in lore books, comics, the mer- specifically on the topic of mermaids, they're very fleshed out, and I think they will build to something in-game that will... I, Yeah, I have to agree. Um, I, I think it's like a mark of good foreshadowing is that you don't know it's foreshadowing until the thing that it was foreshadowing happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, that I, sounds right. It sounds I think, like good foreshadowing. I don't know if if when mermaids come, they will say, "Hey, do you guys remember when you broke all of our mermaid statues? We're pretty peeved about that." I don't know if they'll do that, and if they don't, it will be a missed opportunity. It will, in retrospect, we are going to look back at the sunken curse event and say, "What a weird activity that was!" Like, what what exactly? And I feel there is right now um, among some of us in the community uh, a feeling that perhaps what Rare is doing is very improvisational. It, I would agree that it does feel pretty flying, improvised. Flying by the seat of their pants. I, I actually, discussing with another friend, they came up with the idea. I, they really thought definitively that the the Mermaid Curse statues uh were just an asset they had lying around the studio that at one point had been created for another purpose or for no purpose at all. And they said, well, we've got to create an event this week. What if we stick these statues underwater? Because they had that 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 loot, the loot feature, the feature that loot can spawn underwater. That was the feature. And then they have to rack their brains and say, how do we turn the feature into an event? A two-week-long set of commendations, a set of challenges. And they say, well, we'll just stick these statues under. Um, they feel theme-appropriate, mermaids and pirates and underwater. Um, but the actual thought of every time we add a puzzle piece into this game, what does it connect to? And the thing about adding a puzzle piece onto a puzzle is that it has to attach to some parts that are already on the puzzle, but it also has to have some open loops that you're going to attach onto later. And... I don't know if these puzzle pieces they're adding right now um, feel like they're cut from a plan or if they feel like they're moving week to week and just doing what they can that makes sense in the moment to get content out to us. Yeah, I think a good uh, comparison that's very popular right now with um, the, the way the world of Sea of Thieves is changing is Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite's world is just changing all the time. There's there's like in-game events that are really just there for like theorists and lore people uh, to, to wonder, hey, what's going on here in Fortnite? And see if Thieves is doing that too. Um, I think they're doing it slower. They've, they've been around for a, a shorter amount of time, so I think that's to be expected. Um, th- there, there was however an expectation before the game came out and maybe this is just totally not fair to ask this of the game but like it i thought it would be something more 
uh, or, or I should say less like a resetting multiplayer map in a game like Call of Duty or PUBG or something that is the same map every single time, but like you can do different things in your session, but you know, it's the same map. Uh, and, and it is a little, it a little different from that in that it's evolving, but I was hoping that there'd be some thing that, that like you could change in your session that could change the world. Uh, and that is, that has not been the case. Like there's no animal crossing esque town builder or like, uh, something that you can just, I'm just going to cut down this tree. Like you can't cut down a tree. It won't stay that way. Um, am, am so, I so like you, totally, you felt, I, I see where you're going. I think that a better comparison than Fortnite with what you're saying might be Minecraft. And what I, what I mean by that is, um, Sea of Thieves is often praised for being a sandbox pirate world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you want to look at a sandbox game, look at um, Minecraft. Where you, uh, Obviously, Sea of Thieves is not a building game. That, that's a different thing entirely. But what Minecraft does is it gives you a world to play in in a sandbox, potentially multiplayer. And um, you are earning things and you are building things through the actions you take. But you're permanently yeah. altering this world. You're altering the sandbox. Everyone has the same tools available, um, and you build yourself up from the bottom. You build yourself up by by participating in the game, in the grind, in the in the resource harvesting, um, whatever it may be. Um, sea of Thieves is not that type of sandbox, uh, potentially to the detriment of like what some players' expectations or hopes for the game. Yeah, I I, I just. I'm thinking of like a game like Minecraft or even a more traditional action adventure game like a Zelda or something where there is progression in the story just like Sea of Thieves but unlike Sea of Thieves you need to do it. You need to do it to change the world. You you need to actually go ahead and and accomplish those tasks and in Sea of Thieves there like I could just not play for a month and something will change and i'll come back it's like i didn't do that it progressed on its own which is an interesting different idea um but maybe to me at least just uh feels a little bit like there's something left to be desired there and i i think the idea of calling it a sandbox is a little generous right now um the the tools that you really have in sea of thieves are your interactions with other players. You have some like actual tools at your disposal, like shovels and lanterns and stuff like that that everyone has, and that's interesting, and those are growing as well. The, uh, they added a few of those since launch. But um, the the way you interact, interact with other players is what is supposed to be championed here, and I don't think that the var- uh, variability in the things that there are to do is quite at the level that would be required to call it a sandbox to say something along the lines of like anything can happen with your friends and like i don't know man a few things can happen with your friends i feel like that's kind of been a a specter hovering over sea of thieves since its announcement not um just the fact that it's so difficult to compare what you do in Sea of Thieves relative to what's in another game, because that comes with expectations that aren't really set. Like, um, from the beginning, this was just like it, the 
it was commonly reported like just oh pirate mmo yeah and no it's not that <laughs> it's it it it's i i really don't know like i can't it sounds like really pretentious but i feel like i can't really ascribe my usual like go-to genre um mechanic descriptors to sea of thieves it's no i, I actually i think yeah. i can describe sea of thieves pretty well and 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 you're right though that what sea of thieves is it's hard to relate to other games because it is something different and i think that we can talk all day about what our expectations were or what kind of we are disappointed the game wasn't this other thing and i think that all players who have interacted with sea of thieves have some element of that too you know what i, I kind of thought this was going to be an mmo zelda or i kind of thought this was going to be more of a sandbox or i kind of thought whatever doesn't matter it is what it is um but what it is still has room for improvement but i have a good way of describing what it is i think and that is sea of thieves is two different things on top of each other one of them is this completely open emergent that's kind of sea of thieves um drinking game word if you listen to the developers uh, and drink every time they say emergent, you will have to go to the hospital. <laughs> um, yeah. It's this open Im- uh, world of emergent possibilities that uh, because of the social element, because of the um, online element and other players and other crews, there are a lot of different things that can happen that, and, and not just the player-based things, but in-game things that can happen that uh, create stories. You create your own stories. That's kind of what they said, like, the game doesn't have a story. You create your own stories. And that's disappointing for some players, but it can be a very strong element to, of the game. The, the stories you create can be very compelling. On top, Underneath that, that openness of it is the straight and narrow of it. The, the game, what objectives the game gives you to complete. Uh, those are not open. Those are like a, a system or a structure of progression. Uh, the game kind of had to have that, right? It's not a pure sandbox. No game can really be. People want an objective. And so this pr- this pr- progression system of completing voyages, which are just grindable, repeatable tasks, um, on your way to a further and further carrot-on-a-stick kind of goal, um, that is one half of the game. And the other half is the openness that you encounter while doing the carrot on the stick half um where where i currently have the most thought put into sea of thieves is every update so far i feel has been mainly geared towards uh the openness sandbox nature of what can happen on the way to my destination it's all about the journey they they've really added in elements that focus on the journey you're the the Hungering Deep was all about adding ways to interact with other players and adding in a new threat you can encounter, the Megalodon, um, that just happens to run into you on your way to your destination. Um, and I think that the Curse Sails is a lot of that too. It's going to be a new type of ship. It's going to be new types of cannonballs. It's going to be new types of threats. Um and they're doing a lot to expand that open sandbox, that open emergent side of the gameplay. What I really hope they take time to look at and add to as the game goes on 
is the other half, the carrot on the stick straight line progression system, uh, which is the weak part of the game right now. Yeah, this, I would totally agree. Yeah. Uh, it. I, I each one of these build rat adventures, and uh, some of the stuff that they just put out in patches in between those, does seem to add more options to your play session. Like you, you mentioned, the megalodon. That's just a thing that can happen now. Before that, there was the uh, the kraken. That's also a thing that can happen. Uh, it, they, like you, your ship can just run into one of these monsters, and that's a that's a problem potentially. Uh, and there was a new item called the speaking trumpet that just lets you talk to people from farther away, uh, and that makes the communication that's possible in the game very different. And it seems like the hope at Rare and at Microsoft is that with the addition of each of these things over time, the variability in voyages will be so great that it won't feel like a Skinner box, um, which is probably admirable. That is a, that's a good goal. I don't think anyone wants to be described as, or I don't think any game wants to be described as a Skinner box. That's pretty negative in connotation, but um, the, you, you are right where the, the game lives in the journey between your starting point and your destination and uh, do you think that maybe if we have this conversation again in a year, let's say, will that journey be so diversified by the amount of new things they're adding in Build Red Adventures and patches and expansions that like this just isn't a problem anymore? Going on a voyage can be completely different than going on the next voyage. I think that is possible, and I think that that's kind of what we've seen their direction so far. Um, but, like, if the two halves of the game are really simply the the destination, which is a voyage, the, the, what the game gives you as an objective, and then the journey, which is the many possibilities of things that can happen uh, that make it fun on the way. Um, the objective right now, the destination, not very fun. It's fine. The journey, really fun. Especially, but it's particularly dependent on the players that you have with you and the players you find in the world. Um, that journey, I think that if they continue to add to that journey, you might get to a point where the destination doesn't matter ever. But I don't think that the idea that that might happen is a good reason to not improve the destination itself. I think the destination itself, it, it should be fun to do a merchant voyage uh that is what the game gives you the game gives you a type of voyage to do that's the only objective the game has is to do a voyage and those voyages in and of themselves minus the megalodon minus every other ship on the server minus every other crew member on your boat minus the kraken minus the skeletons minus whatever else you can find if you subtracted all of that and you just went on a gold hoarder voyage, it needs to be fun. And that is the only... I say it's the only. Uh, it, it's the biggest weak link in the game. Uh, it's not that big. It's not too big because I'm still playing it a lot. Um, but I think that that's an element they haven't yet impacted hardly at all. They haven't yet made that a goal to improve. 
what are they going to do to make a merchant voyage fun? Because right now, yeah, no, they're not. They're de- super not. Definitively, we can say it's not fun. Um, I don't so, think that's con- controversial at all. Every single person hates merchant voyages. Right. They, I, they're very. That's bad. what I want to see. That's if there's one thing I want to see, it's that they address making the destination itself fun, not just the randomness that can happen on the journey. At the very least, I'm pretty sure it's universal. Nobody likes doing pigs on merchant voyages. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's doubly true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I would say, do I think, like, most of these issues people raise will be, like, mitigated to non-existent in a year's time? I think, I think it's very possible just because the game is like as many issues as as you could still raise with it it's very much a different beast than it was even four months ago when it came out um absolutely and i i feel like we've we've gone over before how um what they're doing with the build rat adventures seems like a a bit on the improvisational side um i think the the large scale events they're doing like the hungering deep curse sales are very much um like I have to imagine, much of that was set in stone before, like mo- months to maybe even like a year or more before release. Um, but the flip side of doing things improvisationally is you can be reactive to how your players are responding in real time, and I we, we've seen a little bit of that with things they've done, and also getting into um, what we've discussed before with um the alleged purpose of the build rat adventures like being to introduce things that sort of vary your journey um we see that also a bit with we mentioned that megalodons are just out in the world now and it's i think something we we didn't note with that was we mentioned that the kraken was already a force out in the world and the kraken just it just is 100 percent bad news all of the time if you run into it it will it just wants to attack you until you're either sunk or it gets bored with you um megalodons have different behavior like different ai behavior and that kind of goes into their they want players to be able to tell stories well every encounter with the megalodon is a different story because once you see it it's will it attack me will it just sort of cutely swim along the boat will it attack us get fired at and then run away like a coward um little things like that are sort mm-hmm. of they it a, a lot of little things can build up over time and i kind of feel like i have the confidence they could i yeah i i have to really... say i i feel confident in that too i think that the little things are already building up um i think that the game that is out right now is fundamentally the same game we played four months ago but with so many micro changes um i would say the megalodon is not a micro change but but there's a lot of changes that go under the radar a lot of things that um that we don't talk about that really did improve the game and there's so many of those changes that uh they're like you said reactive to feedback um which is a very i think a very big note you have to say for rare is that yeah it's true the dev development of this game has been incredibly receptive to feedback um it can at points that can be a detriment but i think that most fans would agree 
that are all feedback-based versus no feedback-based. Uh, you'd go with all feedback-based. And this is and, coming from a, con- a company that's been known in the past for being like 100% out of touch with their fans. So this is a really cool and uh, and new thing for them. I'm, I'm yeah. excited to see where it goes. And also, like 20 minutes ago, you said that the Megalodon wasn't a micro change. And I wanted to just say, yeah, it's probably a mega change. Um, but I did not get the opportunity making this explanation not funny. Um, we're, we're about to, to wrap up. But before we do, uh, I just wanted to do something fun. Let's go around in a circle, uh, starting with you, Cameron, or not, if you uh, can't think of anything right now. I just need um, the premise of what you're asking. The, I know, I, I know. I'm, I know I'm, I'm burying it. I'm burying it really deep in this explanation. What is the number one thing you'd like to see in the near future for Sea of Thieves? Mm, like, generally... Up to you. Like, across the board, more customization, personalization options. Oh, yeah. That'd be cool. Um, uh, they they always need more clothes. Like, I'll just... I'll just say, um, like, since that's very broad, like, on a minor level, just... Um, like I, for example, ship hulls in the game. Um, they're one of the more expensive cosmetic items you can try to obtain, um, which which alter the the color of the hull of your ship. Um, I finally accrued enough money to spend on one, and I kind of am at the point where, geez, they they might add one I like more later. So I'm not going to buy any of the ones I see in this game right now, but mm-hmm. um. That that's like a a very minor part of kind of what I'm after. Um, in a in a more like broader like more ambitious sense, I mean giving the player more agency over like their ship, their pirate, what they have. Um, they've mentioned um, they're working on letting pirates have the agency to alter their hair color. Um, that was a thing I guess we we haven't really talked about, but it was controversial when the game came out that um, you do not um, pick the features of your pirate like in a, in an interface with sliders or um, or like yeah, or like it's all this, a, just a, randomly generated. You, and you can say you yes pick, or no, right? You pick from a albeit never ending um, selection of completely randomized in-engine pirates that you start and then progress through the rest of the game with unless you reset your character which requires forfeiting all your experience and items um and like that that was very controversial a lot of people have either you kind of rolled with it or you didn't yeah i mean i don't know if i've ever thought that was a good idea i don't know i think everyone has had to just kind of swallow it that that's more or less what I did to be honest, because um like again we talked about setting expectations for the game. Um I fully expected like a large customization suite that I'd spend like eight hours in. Um instead I probably spent just as much time uh resetting the random pirates trying to get one that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um But I'd like to see, say you could have features where, like, you can alter your appearance in other ways. Like, they already kind of have this with the the tattoo system they added, um, scars you can equip, 
like I'm seeing more and more of it creep in over time, but just stuff like, oh, you can give your pirate an, e- an earring, a necklace, uh, change this pre-existing clothing to a different color. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. And just just really just more. Um, like, a, again, with the ship options, the, the clothing, um, they've done a... This kind of dovetails into something they very recently revealed was a... A, it's called the Huntress figurette. It's very blatantly an homage to Perfect Dark. Um, uh, Joanna on the on the front of the ship, and mm-hmm. they uh, they I've noticed in that they in order to sort of pirate up this because you know jo- Joanna's a character from a sci-fi game in the not too anymore flung far flung future, um, and they've redesigned her so she's wearing like a traditional pirate jacket, and they've redesigned her falcon pistols to be like like more piratey, like flintlocky style pistols. And the first thing I thought was upon seeing that was that's a really cool figurehead, but now I kind of want my pirate to be able to hold a gun like that. That looks like that. Yeah, yeah. Understandable. As okay, for me, Jeff. Yeah. yeah. As for what, me, what, I think yours? if there's one thing I want in the game right now, um, or you know, in the next year or whatever, I really would like them to take another pass at the three uh, trading alliances, the three trading companies, and um, not necessarily reevaluate, but but um, improve or change the structure of those of those voyages um, organically. Uh, you know, I think we've talked about merchant. I won't get into the reasons that merchant alliance voyages are the worst, but they are objectively the worst. There's a, a million ways you can improve it without completely shutting it down from scratch. You can just change up little things here and there or massive things and improve that. Uh, for the Gold Hoarder company, there are riddle quests that are fun in theory and fundamentally not worth doing in execution. And there are very not that difficult to think of ways to improve that. Um, when you come to Order of Souls, that is sort of the bounty f- hunting company. You're you're fighting waves of skeletons. Um, I feel would like be, they're in the best position. They Order are in the Souls. best position, but I think it's also not hard to come up with ways to improve it further with um, more varied methods of combat, more varied types of enemies. Um, right now, they added in the gunpowder skeletons, and suddenly you had, well, man, now there's a gunpowder skeleton. I have to switch up my strategy. I need to not only try to stay alive and not get exploded, but I would like to group up the skeletons and then hit a precise point with my with my uh, precision aim and blow it up so that I can take out a whole wave at once. That suddenly that sudden change to the strategy of the situational combat we need more of, and that you can do that by adding more types of enemies, more types of skeletons, even and um, different ways to interact with them. And uh, like we said, Gold Hoarders, Merchant Alliance. And if they even want to add new trading companies with with yeah. entirely different types of voyages, we can go on. That's what I want more than anything else. Because I feel very confident they're going to add more emergent scenarios. They're going to add more tools for my pirate to take with me on those journeys and on those in the, into those emergent scenarios. I don't worry about those aspects. I, I can come up with my own ideas. But I know that Rare is catering to those aspects. I really would love 
to see any evidence that they're looking at the voyages themselves and saying, let's add a new type and let's let's rework an old type to make it just a little bit better. Uh, that's what I want. That's my number one. Um, I've brought this up before, but my number one is I, I want to feel like I have more impact on the world, like a more active uh, place in the Sea of Thieves. Before the game launched, there there were some talks about like maybe we'll honor the first pirate legend uh, that uh, crossed that rank. That didn't happen uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that the first pirate legend obtained the rank through less than uh, entirely legit means. But it's that's a totally different conversation. Um, w- one way that I could see that happening more easily is if there were the introduction of player factions. Um, before the game launched, there was... I, I think it was the Mermaid's Fortune, the Mad Monkey, and something else, a third one. Do you remember the name of that one? Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't either. Um, but they were things that you... They, they were like clubs that individual pirates could be part of. And they could raise their faction's banner and collect loot and, and do things for that faction. And I've been playing a lot of Pokemon Go li- lately. And one of my favorite things in that uh, in that game to see happen is... Um, your town can be completely influenced by an influx of visitors from a certain player faction like team mystic could just turn your entire town blue um i i want to see that come into sea of thieves so there could be things like competitive build rat adventures so maybe each of the factions are working for like okay who can kill the most mermaid statues overall per team which team can do it and then whichever team wins uh that could have some sort of thing for them i don't know what it would be either like a material uh, reward like a new aesthetic thing or just a, a world change like maybe your team's flag flies somewhere if you win a build red adventure for your team um something like that i would definitely be into um i i would definitely want to see something like that i don't know how into that they are because they seem to want to promote just like anyone you see on the open water can be a friend or an enemy and if you can see that they're like oh that's mad monkey i'm mad monkey too maybe you'd be less likely to like try to fight them um but i would like to see it anyway i i think that uh the the benefits in that situation could outweigh the anti-benefits what it were what word am i trying to think of there there actually is not a word for that not in english anyway well, there's got to be a word for it. <laughs> the benefits <laughs> and the cost. Cost to benefit. Analysis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that word is, it's, it's a toughie. It's a toughie. Uh, so that's what I, that's what I came up with. Um, in general, I, I think we all enjoy Sea of Thieves. I think it's fair to say that we enjoy Sea of Thieves to differing amounts. Um, but I, I'm optimistic about the future. I think it'll be cool. I think it'll be a fun thing to uh grow up alongside world we're already adults i don't know what i'm talking about seems like a good time to end it uh hey jeff you want to tell the audience where people can find you yeah so uh i'm located i actually have a sea of thieves blog i mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, medium.com slash golden 
hyphen sans hyphen blog post, uh, which is the most hilarious pun. Um, maybe if you just Google Golden Sands blog post, you might find it. You might not. I don't know. Um, but you also find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle on Twitter at Monin, the word moaning without a G. Bonin, the word boning without a G. Onin, that's O-N-A-N. The longest Twitter handle. I wrote it when I was 15 years old. That's a terrible Twitter handle. Um, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so follow me on Twitter. Look at that blog. I kind of try to post something multiple times a week on the Sea of Thieves blog that keeps you up to date. If, if you don't look at any other website, I would hope that just my blog alone would keep you up to date with everything you need to know that is being added to Sea of Thieves. But you're also you're also going to find my opinions. So so it's it's a give and a take. Yeah, on the downside, you're going to find my opinions in there as well. So I'll leave that up to you. And Cameron, what do you do? Uh, well, I don't run a Sea of Thieves blog, but um, you're uh, I do a bit of a uh, bit of artwork. Some of it's Sea of Thieves themed. Um, uh, you can feel free to check out uh, my portfolio at uh, com. That's Regal spelled R-E-I-G-L-E. And uh, for more um, semi-regular updates, um, you can also go to my Twitter handle uh, at CamRegal. Um, tend to tend to post some art there. Um been a bit of a slowdown recently but that's because i'm working on something interesting in the background that i hope to share really soon and me of course i always um shave poodles into interesting sea of thieves shapes so you can find me at wolf's poofy puffs so i'll talk to you guys later and we're coming back from the hot topic thank you very much mitchell oh thanks mitchell yeah no problem mitchell uh, if you want to write into the Super Jump podcast, you can do so at the email address podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. That's podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. Now it's time for the after school activities. James, what is your after school activity? So mine is a YouTube video that came out, I think it was in May. So probably everybody's seen this at this stage. Oh, I have seen this, yeah. It is so cool though. I had to share it. Um, It's really, really brief. And it's basically a, imagine if you saw the intro to Breath of the Wild on the Game Boy Color. Um, I think it it only goes for a couple of minutes. and it's made by Nintendo Wire, who look like they've done a lot of these sorts of D-Make concepts. They did one for um, Captain Toad on Game Boy Color as well. I saw that one um, too. That was really cool. Yeah, it's just so creative and awesome. And um, it reminds me a little bit of that, um, you know, I think it was a GDC talk or something. Nintendo was showing a demo of like a, a 2D overhead kind of test version of breath of the wild oh yeah in the, the, the style of the original zelda and yeah uh, yeah that yeah. was their their demo just to test like their chemistry engine type stuff that's right yeah um so this reminds me a lot of that it, it's just so cool and it actually dare i say it it actually as i'm watching it i'm thinking oh man 
this would be so good. I'd actually love to play this game on Game Boy Color. Like, yeah, well, I really love awesome. the uh, I love the three Game Boy Zelda games that there are, especially Link's Awakening. Link's Awakening might have been my personal favorite Zelda game before Breath of the Wild came out. So I've definitely yeah. got a, a soft spot for like that style. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I I really recommend checking it out. And while you're there, definitely check out their other D makes as well. They're really cool. Cool. Um, mine is also a YouTube video. It's called What Makes Mario Music So Catchy? It's by a YouTuber named Scruffy. Uh, if you've listened to the show for a while, a, a little bit ago, I did a mid-jump about the music of Banjo-Kazooie and how it uses leitmotifs and uh, like recurring themes to explain like what's going on in the universe of Banjo-Kazooie, especially in the opening of the game. Um, Scruffy does the same thing with uh various mario games in this video again the title is what makes mario music so catchy um he's he knows a lot more about music theory than i do which is uh easy to do (laughs) it's easy to know more about music theory than me uh and he uses it to really explain like all of the very small little idiosyncratic uh moments in mario songs that kind of put them uh it put them in your head forever and they're just stuck and they they mean something like uh if you hear a snippet of the underground theme from super mario brothers nes you immediately know what game that's from and you can probably tell like okay i'm supposed to be thinking underground right now here's how that music accomplished that thing so i I definitely go check it out i i strongly recommend it in the meantime, our theme song was Battle Against a Clueless Foe from uh, Shane Meza off of his Mother 4 soundtrack. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever thing you're listening to. Uh, if you can review us, that'd be great. If you can review us on iTunes, even better. Uh, if you want to tell a friend about the show, that's fantastic. That's all. It's all good. You're, all, you're allowed to do all of it. Uh, and you can catch us on Twitter. Uh, we're Super Jump on on Twitter and Facebook and Super Jump Magazine uh, itself is superjumpmagazine.com, which is a uh, medium page where we post all of our articles. And sometimes uh, are those articles are links to this podcast, so you can just really just immerse yourself in the Super Jump lifestyle. Not hard to do. We're very friendly, and the community is small but fantastic. So until next time. Stay super. super.